0: Please turn to Exodus chapter 20. It's here that we're presented with the Ten Commandments. And today I want to look at the third commandment, which is and has been widely misunderstood. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name. In vain. The modern understanding has been simply do not curse using the Lord's name, but it's really much deeper than this. If you take the name Jesus, if you say you are a Christian, if you say you are a follower of Jesus, but your life is found to be void or empty of what it truly means to follow Jesus. It says right here that the Lord will find you guilty, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes Jesus in vain, because you've rejected righteousness and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So how exactly do you embrace righteousness and cleanse yourself from that guilt? Now please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 starting with verse 19. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let everyone who names Jesus depart from unrighteousness and sin. Verse 20, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay some for honorable use, and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. So it's saying right here that you must cleanse yourself from anything dishonorable, and Jesus will set you apart As holy. So what is dishonorable? It may be what you're eating. It may be what you're feasting your eyes upon, whether it be violence, sexual uncleanness. One that we've talked much about here is walking in bitterness, maybe towards a person or two in your life. Or maybe it's just how you see the world from that bitter point of view where you're constantly complaining, where you're the victim. Maybe it's lusting after money, addiction. It says that we must cleanse ourselves from anything dishonorable, And if you stop dishonoring Jesus with your behavior, with your actions, with your decisions that you're making, he will do something that it's quite possible we have no idea what it truly means. We can't even fathom in our simplistic minds, but it says he will set you apart as holy. So what's so amazing here is that if you take the action towards righteousness, towards turning away from all that is dishonorable, turning away from sin, then Jesus will take direct action for you, setting us apart as holy. It's so much bigger than us. It's for Jesus. And it's his desire to use holy vessels for his kingdom, for his purpose. So that's why we've come here today. To honor Jesus with our bodies, with our words, with our thoughts, with every single thing that we do so that we could be Maybe if we would do that, we would come into a little bit better of an understanding of what it truly means to be set apart as holy. Welcome to the National Prayer Chapel.
1: The message today is entitled, The Journey of Faith. The Journey of Faith. Almighty God, you've called us out of our land a journey. And frankly, many of us have tried to hang on to our homeland, and we've been rebellious and slow. Lord, I plead that you will call us, each one, out of our homeland to the journey of faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Faith, in my mind, is a verb Not an adjective. I am faithing. And it's not something I do one time. It's a way of life. And faithing is always ignited by a Rhema word. Remember the definition of Rhema. It is a God breathed word that comes to us from the Holy Spirit. From Scripture, or He can come and speak directly to us. It is an assignment that God has given to us to go do what He's called us to do. And it takes faith to fulfill that Rhema word. We can't fulfill it without faith. So often, the Christian life is spoken of as a journey. That's difficult for many to grasp because your focus is on what do you have to do tomorrow morning? You've got to go to work. What time do you have to get up? You've got to do this and this and this and this. And you have your whole to do list. And so tomorrow you're going to focus on getting that to do list done. But every day you do your to do list, you are moving on the journey toward your death. You have a limited number of days on this earth. You do not have an unlimited source of time. You have a limited source of time. So, the journey will be until the end of your allotted time. And if you have taken that journey unconsciously, You will by accident end up in hell. No one will go to heaven by accident. Most will go to hell by accident. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what? I think I'd like to go to hell today. No, of course not. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what? Today's my day to sin. You know, Friday is my day historically that I allow myself to have my favorite dessert. Creme brûlée. Once a week, I'll have the sugar. But we don't do that with sin. We don't say to ourselves, okay, it's Friday, I can go fornicate. You know, Or it's Friday, I can cuss my husband out or my wife out. It's Friday, so I can beat my child up. Now we don't wake up in the morning with the intention of sinning. We wake up in the morning with the intention of accomplishing our to-do list or our honey-do list taking care of our wives, or our husbands, or our family. So we don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, today is my day, I'm going to sin. So the journey is going to take place, whether you take the journey consciously or unconsciously, you will take the journey. Now the question is, will it be a journey of faith based on the Rama word of God to you? And will it be a verb where you walk in the exercising of that faith Or will you simply be unconscious, dead, accomplishing nothing in your goal toward heaven, but accomplishing another day toward death? And none of us knows when our day comes. I have been blessed beyond measure to be as old as I am and never have had to be in suffering and sickness. I can count on my fingers the number of times I've been to a doctor in my life. I've just been blessed with health. I've been very grateful to the Lord for that. I didn't ask him for that. That's simply a gift he's given me. And I have been on a journey. I've been on a faith journey. Let me share what a faith journey is. James, the second chapter. I'll begin with verse 21. Was not your ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. What you do day by day will determine whether or not your faith has been completed, and whether your journey will be successful. I lived for some time in a little town called Laramie, Wyoming. I'm currently planning a trip next summer back to Laramie, Wyoming. I've never been there as an adult. I'd like to go back and see the house we lived in, if it's still standing. I'd like to visit the church. I was in as a little boy. I want to see what Laramie is like again. So I know right now the day is coming when I'm going to make reservations. I've already checked the Internet. I'm going to make reservations at a hotel in Laramie. I also plan on buying a pair of cowboy boots while I'm in town. I wore mine out many years ago. I want to go up to what is called the front range. I want to drive over to Medicine Bow. These were favorite places. I want to go to Happy Jack Canyon. Just aside, Happy Jack Canyon is a a place filled with beautiful trees and huge boulders. And the boulders are made of granite with a mixture of colors. And so the stone is just exquisitely beautiful. I spent many, many wonderful outings at Happy Jack Canyon. I have carried with me in a a very safe place a rock I took when I was four or five years old home from Happy Jack Canyon. Well, I have a clear picture of where I want to go. Now, when I go to get the ticket to fly or if I... Well, let's say I'm going to fly. I haven't made that decision yet, but let's say I'm going to fly. So I go to the the Internet, and I look at where all of the airplanes are flying. And I say, oh, this one's going to go to New York City. Yeah, let's go to the New York City. Oh, here's one that's going to go to, to Minot, North Dakota. Why don't we go over there? You know what? I'd like to go to Denver, too. New Orleans looks good, too. When am I ever going to get to Laramie? I'm not going to, am I? I'm going to run out of money before I get to Laramie. You say, I want to go to heaven. Are you going to run out of money before you get to heaven? Money is time. Are you going to run out of time doing this wild hopscotch around the country doing all the things you want to do before you get to heaven. Because if you don't get to heaven, you go to hell. That's the default position. So please, listen carefully to me today as I try to outline what this faith walk is. It is not a vacation walk. It takes sacrifice. And hardship, and deliberate choices. Now you can walk, and you can travel in many pleasant places. You can travel to wondrous places of excitement and beauty, and that will never end up taking you to Laramie. You can travel this country your whole life in a motor, in a motorhome. You can see every national park. You can can travel wherever you want to go. You can go to Europe. You can go here. You can go there. But in the end, will you go to heaven? The way you spend the limited amount of time and energy you have will determine whether or not you can successfully make it to the kingdom above. You have no time to waste you have no resources to waste. They are all limited. Now, part of what I've discovered is that because I made a decision, I wanted to go to heaven, much of my life has been like one of these arcade machines where you put, as a kid, your quarter in, and you have these little balls. You shoot them up and then it comes back down through, and it goes ding, 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 and it bounces you all over, and then you get down to the bottom, and so you don't go in. A little lever goes boop and sends you flying up again. I feel like much of my life has been like that because my journey has not been without getting bounced, and it has not been straight. And by the grace of God, I'm still alive, and I've not run out of life but I still have a ways to go. I'm not finished with my journey. So let's take a quick look at Abraham and his journey. There are some things about that journey I want to highlight for you. First of all, Abraham, that the Apostle James is speaking about, lived for 75 years in a wicked, sophisticated city where his focus was making money. He was a businessman. It was a family business. And they had much gold and silver, the scriptures tell us. They were wealthy in their business. They had succeeded abundantly in trading, in selling, in livestock. But their money was not in livestock. It was in hard, cold cash, gold and silver. As well as on the hoof. Now, after 75 years, God comes to him and commands him to leave his family and to take a journey. His family does not want to let him go. His father does not want to let him go. His uncle does not want him to go. So they finally compromise and they go just part way to Haran, which is still in Mesopotamia. And a wicked city. It also means delay. And Terah, his father's name, meant delay. It also meant lack, lack. So in other words, he is stopped in his journey by his family who is delaying him from obeying what God has called him to do. And in that place, God's abundance does not flow to him. And finally, the Lord speaks to him in chapter 12 when his daddy dies. And the literal translation in the NIV, it says, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, Get thee out now. It is an absolute command. It is urgent Why? Because he has delayed his journey. And I just wonder if any of you today are are living in Haran. Delayed. Short on money. Some of you will live most of your life in Haran. Always short of money. Have you always been short of money in your life? Probably that's because someone is delaying you from doing what God's called you to do. He calls us always with a promise. Abraham is granted an incredible promise. I will make you into a great nation. In other words, Abraham is saying, but I have to leave this great city. And God says, okay, I'll make you into a great nation. Nation trumps city. I will bless you. I want my daddy's blessing. Don't worry about your daddy's blessing. Don't do what your daddy told you to do. I'm your father. I'll bless you. I will make your name great. Oh, they're going to a foreign land to live in tents where they have no registry in the social world. In Haran and in Ur of the Chaldees, they were very well known. They were successful, wealthy business people. They were invited to all the parties. They were looked up to. And now they're leaving, and everybody's saying, what are you doing going to the backwoods? You're going to be nobody. And so God said to him, I will make your name great. I will be a blessing, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. In other words, he's leaving his family. When you leave your family, you leave the protection of your family. Remember what happened when Sodom was taken over by a foreign army, and Lot was captured? The culture was your family rises up, and you go wipe the enemy out. So God is saying, look, you're leaving behind all of your resources. You're leaving behind your connections. Don't worry about it. I have you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, you're going to come to nothing if you go to Cana land. It's backward. Nothing good is going to happen in your life. And God says, Everybody on the whole earth is going to know about you. Not just some little city is going to become known throughout the earth. And all of us here know about Abraham, don't we? And we don't live anywhere close to Haran. Today, would you say that Haran was an important city in the world? Are you kidding me? It's a place of livestock. It's nothing. But everybody in the world knows about Abraham. So with this promise, he goes out. Unfortunately, he did not obey God. He was told, leave your relatives behind. Instead, he takes Lot with him. I want you to understand this. Abraham, the great man of God, at the beginning of his journey, thought he was still in charge. He could get God's direction, and then he would decide what was best. Have you been like that? I have. I can make my own business decisions, thank you very much. God doesn't care what I do about a car. I'll make my own choices. I'll make my own choices about where I go and what I do. All God wants to know is, do I love him? Are you kidding me? He wants to know if I will serve him, if I will obey him. So now you're going to see the life of Abram, finally named Abraham, And step by step, God is going to deal with this man so kindly and so painfully that he finally decides even if his wife leaves him, he will obey God. And when Sarah dies, Abraham is not with her. He's in Beersheba. She's in Hebron. Quite a few miles separate them. I don't know what happened, but there was a separation between them, and not one that Abraham wanted, but one where Sarah evidently said, I've gone with you as far as I can go, Abraham. When it comes to killing our son, I'm not going to participate. I'm out of here. I understand. I'm sure that God loved Sarai or Sarah. But I'm sharing this with you to say, please understand, This journey with Jesus is not going to be neat. It's going to be messy. The journey with Jesus is not going to be tied up in a nice Christmas package. It's going to cost you everything. And at every step of this journey, God is going to bring into your life the precise, prescriptive medicine necessary to cause you to humble your heart before God and obey his word to you. And if you don't, he'll have your car repoed or he'll cause you to lose your job or he'll do something else in your life so that you will finally say, I've had enough pain. Okay, Jesus, you're the boss. I've made a mess of this journey, but you have to be willing to admit you've made a mess of the journey. A man called me from New York City last night and said, Pastor, will you pray for my son? He's ex-military. Was just discharged, has taken a job in one of the universities teaching. He does not believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is not a believer in any way. Would you pray with me? I'm going to talk with him tonight. I said yes, and I prayed. And then at 10 o'clock, I went to bed. Immediately, in my dream, the skies grew dark. A tornado came out of the cloud on the highway I was driving on, and it came straight down the highway toward me. It was a monster. And I knew it was a four-lane highway. I knew I had to flip around and go the opposite direction. And as the car began to sway and rock as though it would be lifted into the air, as that tornado began to approach me, I quickly was able to make a left turn and flee the other direction. And as I fled the other direction, everything was in my way to stop my progress. There was road work, road machinery, and my car is being chased by this huge, mega tornado that I know if it catches us, will pick that car up and crush it. And as I'm dreaming this, my phone starts to buzz, and I wake up. And I take the call, my brother from New York. (coughs) And he's saying, Pastor, my son, rejected, is not a believer. And immediately, the Lord gave me the answer. He cannot be a believer because he's never seen the tornado coming behind him. He's never seen the consequence of his sin. He has no concept of the destruction that's rushing down upon his life we must begin to pray that God will show him the tornado that's coming down upon him that will crush his life out. So we began to pray that, that God would utterly convict this man of his sin and unveil for him the depth of the destruction that was about to come upon his life. Went back to bed, went to sleep, no more dreams. I knew God had spoken to me. And said, there's a tornado coming after this man. And he's never looked back to see it approaching. He thinks everything is in front of him. His life is in front of him. He's going to be prosperous. He's going to make it through some way. And he has no clue of the destruction rapidly approaching his life from behind. He thinks he has lots of time because he's young and he's strong and he's educated, and he's got the world by the tail. But there's destruction rushing upon him, and only the conviction of sin can cause him to stop and need a savior. When Abram arrives in the promised land of Canaan, the land that is going to belong to Abraham, what does he find? Famine. So he travels through the land, and he goes to what is called the Negev. What is the Negev? It is the entranceway into Egypt, the place of worldliness, because God has allowed a famine to come in this land, and he thinks he has to provide for himself. He has gold, he has silver, he has resources. But no, no, he wants the same lifestyle he had in Haran and Ur. He wants to be the successful businessman. So he goes to Egypt. And in Egypt, what's he do? He sells his wife to Pharaoh. His wife is the precious treasure that God has given him that will produce the offspring by which all of the promises of God will come true. But because he's upset that God has not met his expectations, He is selling out cheap. And so God comes and exposes him, and this pagan rebukes him. There is nothing more painful than for a child of God to be rebuked by the devil's children for their sin. Why did you do it? What could you have possibly been thinking? And look at the damage you brought to me. He kicks him out of Egypt. But while he's there, he picks up a pretty little slave girl. And that pretty little slave girl is going to cause him a great deal of trouble. And he would never have had that trouble had he not gone down to Egypt. The journey has consequences. So he comes back into the land. Finally, God separates his nephew, sends him down to Sodom and Gomorrah or Lot chooses Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 15 of Genesis, the word of God came to Abram in a vision. This is after his nephew is gone. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram says, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? First, Abram is willing to sell his wife to Pharaoh so that he will be childless. And now he's mad at God because God hasn't given Sarah a womb that's open. You know, one of the greatest disciplines God brings to bear upon us? Closed wombs. In business, with children, in relationships, God specializes in closing wombs. And so we have our expectation of what we should be able to do and what we should be able to accomplish, and we begin to rise up in our accomplishment. We have the plan worked out. We have the people all worked out, and God has to come and say, no, no, shut it down. Anything I create will be a donkey deal. Any children I have out of my own power will be donkey children. There's nothing worse than a house full of braying. God wants something very different for us. And there has to be a learning process on the journey that God will come and take apart what we put together in our flesh. Or else, he'll just let us go on our way, and we will be expending our energy. And the question is, do you have any extra energy to waste on your journey toward heaven, because you may run out before you get there? And I'm warning you again today, do not waste your energy on rabbits from hell. Do you know what I mean by a rabbit from hell? You go out hunting. Your hound. You want that fox. And the rabbit crosses the trail, and the hound decides to go after the rabbit and not the fox. Remember the book guy Bevington wrote on remarkable miracles? And he saw how the hunters whipped their dog because he went after the rabbit. Jan and I always laughed when we used to read that and say, rabbits from hell, Satan specializes in them. We've got to stay before the Lord until we're very clear and we know what the devil is sending across our path that has the warm odor of flesh-pleasing worldliness and what is coming straight from the throne of God. Believe me, I've chased down a lot of rabbits. I don't want to chase any more rabbits. I want the fox. I want the wind. Hagar becomes... Abraham's wife, after God promises that he will give him a son, and Abraham says, oh okay i can't have I can't have a son obviously by Sarah, so I'll have my son by this handmaiden, this servant of Sarah, I'll marry her, and for thirteen years God would not speak to Abraham." You can do things on this journey that will cause God to stop talking with you. I cannot afford to have God stop directing my steps. Because I may expend all of my energy following after my own desires and not after the will of God. And when I come to the end of the journey, I won't be at heaven. I'll be at hell. I can't risk these side trails. Then the Lord comes. He appears to Abraham in chapter 18. And you know, I I marvel at this all the time. Would you know God if he came and knocked on your door? Would you recognize him? Have you seen God? Have you seen Jesus? Would you recognize him? He's not going to look like the pictures from the storybooks. And he's probably not going to be dressed in a long robe. He's going to probably come dressed in a business suit or in jeans and sweatshirt. I don't know how he'll come, but would you recognize him? I have to tell you, I would not in my flesh recognize Jesus if he knocked at my door. That's why James is going to say, entertain strangers. You might be entertaining angels. You might be entertaining Jesus. So don't turn strangers away. Abraham recognized Jesus and brought him the finest meal that could possibly be produced, the finest beef, the finest flour used for the bread. The vegetables, everything was the finest. He served the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now, through this journey, Isaac is born. And in chapter 22, we have the most painful Old Testament passage possible. The words are just three simple words. God tested Abraham. Now I want to tell you, you are on a journey. Whether you like it or not, you are on a journey and there will be a final test. Will you pass the final exam? Or will you try to blow the final exam off and pretend that you don't have to take it? If you don't pass the exam, you can't enter heaven's gate. In Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, in his story, everybody has to cross the Jordan River. And of course, among Christians, the Jordan River is always considered, you have to die. His traveling companion walks out into the river and finds the bottom solid and shallow. While Pilgrim, Christian walks out into the the water, and he finds it deep and the river swift, and he can't get his footing. Because on the journey he did not exercise the level of faith that was necessary to successfully cross that Jordan River, the final exam. And so his traveling companion has to step in and rescue him and lift him up and encourage him and tell him, put your confidence in Jesus. He could never have made it across that river had he not had a traveling companion. Hopeful. Hopeful encouraged him and said, Get on your feet. Stop struggling. We're going to cross together. Are you afraid of death? Do you recognize your time is running down? Even the youngest among you. Your time is running down. You could be declared stage four cancer this week. Being young is no guarantee you will not face death or have a car accident. Some careless driver runs the red light and T-bones your car right where you're at and it's over, or you have a heart attack, and you die. Are you ready? Are you ready to face death today? Do you have the courage to walk through the Jordan River to the celestial city? Do you have the courage to do that today? Are you certain of what your journey has been Has your journey been successful in walking through every trial with your eyes on Jesus, trusting him in what you're doing and what you're saying? Or have you been off on side trips and your focus has not been on Jesus and your focus has been on your own life and your own success? Is your heart filled with fear at the idea? And I talk to some people and they say, oh, pastor, I'm not afraid of death. Oh, I've talked to the strongest, burliest men who say to me, I'm not afraid of death, Pastor. And then I've had to visit them in the hospital as they lay in the bed, dying, whimpering like a little kid. Pastor, am I going to go to heaven or hell? Well, how have you lived? I've lived like hell then you're headed for hell. You want to change that? Yes. And suddenly the fear of death rises in the big strong man who can take his Harley out and wear his black leather and say, I'm the man. And now suddenly he's humbled before God because his life is ebbing away. I've been there many times with men and with women. There's only been one time I've known a man who said, Pastor, I don't care if I go to hell. I don't love Jesus. I don't believe in him. And I want out of here. It has to be a better place where I'm going. And this man, so utterly deceived, turned off his medical treatment and passed. Full of bravo as he slid down the chute to hell. I'd say that's the definition of insanity, wouldn't you? You understand, there is moral insanity. Moral insanity is not to care about your life, not to be aware that you're on a journey, to think you can just live your way, and you're going to a better place. That's moral insanity. I'm in charge of my life. I can make decisions. I can choose to go to church, or I can choose to do this. I can choose to do that. I'm in charge. Right. God will deal with you for so long. And then finally, you'll come to the Jordan River. And if you don't cross over successfully, you sink down into hell. By God's grace in this story, Hopeful kept encouraging, remember, we trusted Jesus. Remember, he gave you a scroll. Remember, he told you this was going to happen. Now rise up. And finally, Christian stood up on his feet, and there was solid ground beneath him. And he walked with Hopeful across. And the gates of the celestial city swung open, And the trumpet blast came, and he was welcomed into the eternal city. I don't want to get through in the nick of time. I want to be hopeful, encouraging others. Come on, let's cross together. We trusted Jesus. He will not leave us. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him. There is a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. It was on this mountain that the tabernacle of God that Solomon built, that's where it was placed, on Mount Moriah. And suddenly we have before us a very clear demonstration in Abraham's life that a sacrifice of a holy person is required for the world to be blessed. And it was looking forward to Jesus, and Isaac couldn't fill the bill. And so at the last moment, God stepped in and delivered Isaac. But Abraham did not know he would deliver him. These stories are so simple and easy when we know the end from the beginning. But it's the journey that catches us. Abraham, in agony of heart, knows Sarah will leave him over this. Knows his life is about to be broken by this. Knows that he is losing the most precious person to his heart, his son Isaac, and with it all the promises of God are going to disappear. He came to faith, we're told, in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, finally by saying, okay, God's word is sure. If God wants me to kill him, God's going to have to resurrect him. Do you trust God to resurrect your death? I was... At Times Square Church, I had sat with the pastors of the Times Square Church for many hours talking about the National Prayer Chapel. They had all concurred that they would financially support the opening of the National Prayer Chapel. And David Wilkerson finally, at the end, had given just over $150,000 for the startup of the prayer chapel. They were faithful to their word. We'd talked through for hours over a meal. We'd met several times. David had set up a schedule so that I would regularly communicate with him. He, He set me up with his executive assistant so that I could reach him at any time I needed to reach him to talk or pray together about the prayer chapel. I was ready to leave. He had just given me $10,000 in cash for the second time and told me, you are responsible for how you use this money. It is between you and Jesus. And as I was walking out of the building, he suddenly called after me. He said, Pastor, come back here. I've got something I have to get for you. I'll be right back. And he left, and he came back, and he had in his hands a series of tapes of sermons that he'd preached at the Times Square Church. And the title of the series, The Death of a Vision. He said to me, we are all very excited about what you're going to do and about the National Prayer Chapel. And what God wants to do there. But God is not going to do anything at the National Prayer Chapel until he's put it and you to death. Do you believe, Ray, that God can resurrect a dead church? And he sent me on my way. And Jan and I listened to that those messages all the way home. And we prayed, oh Lord, deliver us from this word from our pastor. For how can God raise up a dead church? And now year after year after year, I've had to be a part of a dead church. The death of a vision. You're a part of that dead church. I love you for putting up with it. For being here. It's clear you're here for Jesus, not for me. And not for the wonderful, exciting opportunities you have by being a part of this wonderful go go church. Can God raise a dead church? I need someone who will come and who will serve as a setup coordinator. Not me. Not me. Not me. Dead church. Dead church. As you heard our brother David praying today in the circle before the service. Lord, may we now finally enter the promised land. Do you understand what the promised land would be? It would be national radio. It would be the moving power of the Holy Spirit through this congregation in what is called revival power. Power. It would ignite this place in the power of the Spirit of God. I've been looking and praying and standing by faith for this all of my life in ministry, 45 years. I've held countless all-night prayer meetings, countless weekend seminars on revival. I finally gave up all the all-night prayer meetings, and I gave up all the classes. I gave up on all the witnessing classes. I've been to all of them. I've used all of them. Let's go hand out tracts this afternoon. Well, you can do that if you're not dead. You can even go hand them out when you're dead, but nothing's going to happen because you handed them out. Please hear what I'm saying to you today. Can a dead church come alive? Can a dead Isaac come alive? Yes. Yes. My pastor said to me, you and Jan are going to have to suffer through the death of a vision. I had no clue how many years it would take for that dying and that death. And that then you all would have to go through another death in your own journey and in your own life and a giving up of all of your great ideas to be somebody. God will not use a somebody. He uses a nobody. He uses cracked pots. He uses wounded people who are willing to become wounded healers. He uses people who are willing to get low enough, humble enough, unimportant enough. I hope we're all there. And I'm standing by faith that God is now ready to do something astonishing in the resurrection of his people. It's not by chance that you're here. You came at the call of the Holy Spirit, which puts a bullseye on you. God wants to deal with you. He wants to call you to the finishing of the journey. Mighty God, would you finish the journey? Would you call us to life and rescue us as a people? Mighty God, I'm standing by faith that all that you have promised is yes and amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen.